My name is Emma Balfour, and last year I did my honours thesis about uh, memes. Can you just explain, what is a meme? So a meme is sort of any item of culture, it's sort of like a unit of culture that is spread through replication. So it was actually a term invented by Richard Dawkins in the 1970s as a sort of thought experiment, and for him it was like, anything could be a meme. The idea of God was a meme, nursery rhymes were memes. Specifically referring to the internet, it's those images and sort of almost like genres of comedy that you see floating around the internet. I specifically focused about memes relating to the American presidential election last year. Let's say China. 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 I have to have my China. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson. And this episode is all about the increasingly weird connection between technology and democracy, even weirder than Trump's obsession with China. And to help with this episode is producer Miles Herbert. When Trump won the presidency, well, even before he won, during the election, the political climate in America got a little weird started to look differently from what everyone was used to. And the change happened mostly on the internet. Political conversations were happening on message boards like Reddit and 4chan, and information was being conveyed through memes. And almost overnight, things like Pepe the Frog were being retweeted by Donald Trump. And Hillary Clinton had a whole page on her website dedicated to explaining memes to the internet illiterate. Wait a second, what is Pepe the Frog? Well, it's a meme. It was associated with Donald Trump's campaign and alt-right groups around the internet. He represented sort of the downtrodden, and then the downtrodden became Nazis, and so, so did Pepe. No one really knows how it happened, but all of a sudden, a innocent green frog was an international symbol of white nationalism. Everyone was talking about it. Memes stopped being an internet-only inside joke and started appearing on CNN. The mainstream media has a narrative that they're used to telling and a narrative that over time there's sort of this conventions of the election narrative and they were trying to hit those beats. But I think, as we all know with hindsight now, this past election was very different and it didn't hit those beats in the same way. So instead of talking about big political issues like the economy or social issues, what was going on in the polls? People were just talking about frogs? No, they were talking about those issues too. They were just doing it in a different way, a way everyone is still kind of trying to figure out. I still don't quite know what happened, how it happened, how different groups were mobilized, how they communicated with each other, because I think everyone experiences the internet in a different way. Do you have a favorite meme from the election? Oh, Ted Cruz Zodiac Killer. Absolutely. (laughs) So, so memes aren't always necessarily pictures or videos or even phrases. Sometimes it can just be an idea. And the meme of Ted Cruz as the Zodiac Killer is just that. It's, it's just an idea that you pass on in whatever way you can. Despite the fact that Ted Cruz was born two years after the um, murder spree that the Zodiac Killer went on in California. But, you know, there were people held up signs at his rallies. There were so many weird things. That was the funniest meme because I actually think that had a slight impact on his chances. Yeah, well, this is like the question we want to ask with this episode, which is, you know, are these new kind of things that are springing up in the digital age, is it detracting from or enhancing democratic processes? I think it's complicated. And I know that's a bit of a cop out of an answer, but I think it's complicated. I think in some aspects it really does enhance 
sort of political communities because so many people who weren't in politics at all were sort of swept up in this internet culture that surrounded it. But then on the other side, you've got the rise of the far right who have very organised campaigns, often witch hunts against people who are running for politics. I don't know, I think there's a, there's a payoff. You get better political participation, but you also get Nazis. Is it worth it? Are memes destroying democracy, or are they just a different way of communicating it? And memes are just one part of a bigger picture here. Could the digital age signal the end for democracy altogether? Looking at the way memes manipulated the public debate during the U.S. election, there's a strong case for saying, yeah, this is changing the way people's opinions are formed. It's giving far-right groups a voice. It's disrupting democracy. But at the same time, we wouldn't have modern democracy as we know it today without technologies like these that revolutionize the way we communicate. In the 19th century, with the first steam-powered printing press, really created the possibility of mass media. This is Carl Rhodes, professor of organizational studies at the University of Technology, Sydney. Uh, it meant things weren't only written in Latin and kind of vernacular languages were, were used. So in a sense, this is a democratization of knowledge. More people had access to knowledge than ever before, so they could learn and more importantly, they could share their views. Printing press marked the birth of public opinion. The symbol of this is the 19th century coffee houses in London, where white middle class men gathered to talk about how the country should be run. Arguably, public discourse is a little more diverse now, but this period of history is when newspapers first started. Technology and democracy clearly go hand in hand. Here's Carl again. The ability of public debate only existed because of these technologies. The, the idea of politicians being publicly accountable, the technology enabled this to be the case. This history has shaped the way we define what a democracy is. If something is democratic, then we talk about it as a space where you can have an opinion that is different to someone else's. So you can disagree with something your government does and not be hung for treason. Well, in theory you can. This is the basic idea of a radical democracy. Carl explains. If we understand democracy in the tradition of radical democracy, we understand democracy as about people exercising their right to critique, uh, people engaging in dissent, um, and, uh, and, and generally kind of influencing politics through the expression of, of, of views contrary to, to, to those that, that are forced upon them. If you look at the history of communication technology as a sort of continuum, then social media is just the next page in the book or file in the folder. It's proof that there's a connection between innovation and the rise of democracy, but it doesn't mean things are still the same in 2017. But when there's a government crackdown, social media is usually the first to go. Carl says that when it comes to the radical form of democracy, technology definitely made a huge impact. In terms of social movements, protests, rallies, demonstrations, even citizen journalism has been vastly enabled by technology. The communication is fast and cheap and the organisation can be very decentralised, whereas previously it would be potentially more hierarchical. And if you need more proof that communication technology enhances democracy, I've got two words. Arab Spring. Protests, uprisings and revolutions gripped the Arab world in the early 2010s. Over the course of a couple of years, governments in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya and Syria were toppled. Social media was instrumental in organising these protests. Some people even called them the Twitter revolutions. They didn't cause a revolution. The people were already mad. But it was a tool. And that's all technology is. It's a tool designed to help us. 
Some of the activists who took part in the revolutions spoke to the show Daily Politics about the role of social the media. The revolution will not, uh, w- wouldn't happen without Facebook. We could transfer the image on the ground inside a very tiny village in the countryside of Idlib. Facebook have played a very good turn in Syrian revolution. And Twitter also. That's direct from the source, which wouldn't have even been possible without Skype. So there's one more point for technology helping democracy. So in countries without a democracy, technology definitely facilitated democratic movements. It helped to focus the protests. But this isn't the way social media operates in places that already have a democracy. During the U.S. election, social media clouded public opinion. There's almost an infinite amount of data out there. What a guy called David Schenk calls data smog is really, really important. This is Jonathan Marshall, a research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. He thinks the massive amount of information available on the internet is destroying political discourse. So data smog just means an information overload? Yeah, the internet is seemingly endless and filled with a crazy amount of information. So it's like when you're on Twitter or Facebook and you endlessly scroll up and down on your timeline and news, photos, information just continues to appear. But more information is a good thing. Democracy is all about different opinions and being able to express them. Well, no. According to Marshall, the onslaught of information actually creates detachment and distrust. So people tend to close themselves off from opposing viewpoints. People can become very, very firm in their political views. And indeed, when they engage in conversation, rather than being what the, you know, the Habermasian idea of rational public discourse, where everybody works towards the most beautiful and and harmonious and reasonable solution, it becomes a situation where you shout at each other, you separate further off, and you, in fact, don't hear what the other person is saying. But I guess that's the same way people communicate even without the internet. Isn't that the reason you don't talk politics during family holidays? Marshall says the fact that this information and these conversations are being shared and taking place on the internet makes it easier for people to dismiss others' opinions. So talking politics on the internet is actually more polarizing than talking to your cousins about neoliberalism over Christmas dinner. Human communication has developed to be face-to-face. We are constantly looking at each other, constantly evaluating the other person's expression. We're looking at the way they move their hands. When online you cannot see how the other person is reacting, you have no idea how to adjust what it is you're saying. You can only go by the stereotypes. Even if it's just a shouting match, though, the internet gives people a voice who otherwise wouldn't have one. Anyone with a smartphone now has instant access to everything they need to know about the upcoming election or their local representative, and it gives them a platform to talk about it. Not necessarily. Even though the internet seems like a really open, democratic space where anyone can say anything, it doesn't prevent people from being shut out of the conversation. The ideal was that everybody would be able to speak. Now, the problem is that the more people who participate in a particular website or a particular mode of discourse, the less anybody else can participate as well, because you get reams and reams of messages pouring down the screen. There is absolutely no way that you can respond to that. And quite often what people do is uh, break away because it's too big. Okay, but what about social media? Isn't it making it easier for politicians to engage with the public? Like, look at how many followers Donald Trump has on Twitter. Isn't that what got him elected? Of course, but he was just telling people what they wanted to hear. 
Have you ever tried to have an actual conversation on Twitter? All they can do is reiterate slogans. And obviously one of the consequences of Twitter with its character limits and stuff is that slogans tend to get magnified. You can link slogans together and occasionally Donald Trump does that. He finishes one Twitter and then 20 minutes later there's the next Twitter which says continues the sloganeering. And that's all you can expect. Information is shared more and to more people. But it isn't a conversation. It isn't helping anyone exchange ideas about politics. And it's not good for democracy. So, so far, it's looking like technology is a double-edged sword for democracy. It depends on where you are and who is using it. Social media is so important to protests and marches and even revolutions that there's no way it can be bad for democracy. But at the same time, it's changing the way we communicate. And that's disengaging us. So after the break, we're going to take a closer look at exactly who is using technology for political purposes and what this is doing to the public sphere. You're listening to Think Digital Futures. Digital Futures. I'm joined by producer Miles Herbert, and we're trying to figure out what technology is doing to the political sphere. And to do that, we're going to India. It's a lead up to the Indian election, and soon to be Prime Minister Narendra Modi is holding a rally. It's one of the hundreds Modi will hold as he travels around the country trying to reach as many of the nation's 1.3 billion people as he can. There's nothing remarkable about the setup. An empty black stage with a few props, a chair, a lectern, a table with a glass of water. The audience waits for Modi to take the stage. The music gets louder, the MC more animated. Finally, Modi arrives. He smiles, pacing back and forth, waving to the crowd. He offers a quick prayer. Namaste. Deshke Pandra Rajonke Sose Adik Stanopar Lako Lose. There's something off about this picture. Something isn't quite right. Modi isn't actually there. He's a hologram. So we've been talking about the influence technology is having on democracy. What encapsulates this better than a prime ministerial candidate using a hologram to campaign in several places at once? And it was a really effective strategy. During the campaign, Modi gave about 14 different speeches to nearly 1,500 rallies. He reached potentially 14 million extra voters. I love that he's got a glass of water on the stage just in case fake Modi gets thirsty. There's all this attention to detail, but at the same time, it feels depersonalized. He's waving, but there's no audience engagement. There's no atmosphere. There's something about it that seems really hollow. But it worked. Well, this was amazing because it's such a big country. This is Daya Thusu, professor of international communication and co-director of the India Media Center at the University of Westminster. It's a continent-sized country, uh, electoral 
numbers are just mind-boggling, you know, 700 million people voting. He says Modi's campaign was all about being digitally savvy. They had used different kinds of digital methods to get their message across. And not just among the urban middle class digital natives, but actually getting to the next level, which is small town India and rural India. They were able to reach a different kind of constituency and they won comfortably. Not only did using a hologram mean that Modi could campaign in different cities at the same time, but he could also speak in different languages. India has 22 official languages, so Modi's campaign team would dub the speech depending on the audience he was speaking to. Holograms have been used before for things like concerts, but this is the first time it had been used in politics. It's a great example of the way politicians can use innovative new technologies to encourage people to participate in politics. Plus, it's kind of cool. Actually, what Modi was doing was clever. This is propaganda. He's using the novelty of a hologram to manipulate public opinion. He was tapping into a concept called darshan. Dusu explains. You know, in this idea of darshan, which is a concept of having seen the god, he was playing with that idea also. And at a popular level, uh, especially in the rural context or, or small town context, it does work. So Modi is playing into a cultural trend by positioning himself as kind of a demigod. It's actually not that uncommon for people in public life in India to have that status, but he's definitely got an ulterior motive. Some, you know, sporting personalities have that, uh, politicians have that status. And I think Modi uh, exploited that. I don't know if it's destroying democracy, though. It is convincing people who might not have voted before to get interested in politics. But for what purpose? This is just one example. But it raises a lot of questions about who is actually using technology and what they're trying to get out of it. Because it's not always about fostering public opinions. Dusu thinks that people aren't paying enough attention to this. This connectivity has offered both the possibilities of providing a more multi-dimensional discussion about politics, but also that connectivity has been used, manipulated, managed by political establishment. And it's not just the political establishment who do this. Think about the tech companies who own the apps we use every day. So I guess Apple would probably be the biggest and then what, Facebook, Twitter, they're just companies. But they're more powerful than some of these countries. There are nearly 200 countries in the world. Most of them do not have the capacity to deal with somebody as powerful as a Google or a Facebook or a Microsoft. The old notions of sovereignty, which have their origins in, in Europe, are increasingly being undermined by technological change. These are huge companies, but they're not interested in messing with politics. And the more people who use communication tech like Twitter, the more likely it is that a grassroots movement could be organized. They're interested in making money, and like Thusu said, this undermines the sovereignty of nations. Carl Rhodes sees this as a symptom of globalization. The sovereign is the person who is above the law. So the sovereign nation sets the laws but is not subject to them. The idea of the corporation as a sovereign is widespread, particularly through the growth of you know, globalization and multinational corporations. I guess a good example of that would be something like a special economic zone. They're actual pieces of land, but they're free trade zones. They aren't governed by the same laws of the country they're in, like Shenzhen in China, where Apple and Microsoft have factories. These tend to be powerful companies in developing countries, like American companies who operate in smaller Caribbean islands. Here's Carl again. 
hand in hand with the growth of the corporation as the dominant economic institution through privatization of public organizations and, and the growth of the corporation more generally. With that, we've seen rising levels of inequality. Rising economic inequality isn't democratic. It gives powerful people more power. But again, this isn't the technology itself. The tech is a tool and corporations are using it to make more money. It's still an oversimplification to say that technology is killing democracy. But the profit model encourages the kind of data smog that got the U.S. election unstuck. Does Twitter care of the political ideology that the users are using, or does it just care that they have loads of users? The business model of these companies is that we don't pay. We're not customers of Google, of Twitter, or of Facebook, or anyone else. The customers are the people who give the money, you know, advertisers and so forth. What makes money is clicks, and it doesn't matter if people are clicking on fake news. It's a rotten system, but it's also the problem with all of us as well. What we click on reflects the undemocratic parts of our society. And I think Carl is with me on this one. I don't think technology has the capacity to destroy democracy. I think there are plenty of forces around in the world that are trying to destroy democracy. And some of those are enabled by technology, but not technology itself. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures. This show is supported by the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SCR. Thanks to producer Miles Herbert for this episode. For more info, head to 2SCR.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. And remember to subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. I'm Shane Anderson. Bye for now. Bye for now.